Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started with class. I see some folks still talking and hugging, and I have no problem with that. I, I do not want to interrupt this. I think if we just spent another 45 minutes doing that, I would be, I would be just fine with that. I love you, Carolyn. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Linda Nichols. You don't know her. Never heard her name. You've never met her. You didn't know that she lived at 1505 Rambler Road in Arlington, Texas. But I know her. I know her as a neighbor. I know her as a woman uh, and her husband who always attended church at Mayfield Road Church of Christ when I was a child. I remember the times she would go out and play basketball with me in our front yard and she was really good at shooting. And she never backed down from just whooping me in, in pit or in horse. I remember the time I had my surgery at five, and she was the first person I remember seeing, and she brought this little bitty vase with a flower, and the, the, the vase was this little ceramic frog. I still have that frog to this day. I remember a few years after that when I was learning to ride my bike, and my foot slipped off the pedal, and I fell into her flower bed which was made of cactuses and coming up with all these little cactus parts in my face and running home she I, I did not have a conversation with her my parents didn't have a conversation with her but miraculously a few days later her beloved cactus garden was no longer in front of her house she dug that thing out just so that wouldn't happen to me again. I'll never forget Linda Nichols and the impact she had on me as a very young child. Right about that same time, around five and six years old, uh, I can remember going to church. And one of the things that, that we did on the fifth Sunday nights is that we would have children leading worship. And what that usually entailed, at least for me, was leading singing. Can you believe that, Tim? I was a song leader. But I wasn't quite tall enough to see up over, and so I would stand on the front pew, and George Peters would help me in leading a song. He taught me how to do the one, two, three, four. I did not know how to do that real well, and so it was just all over the place. And I don't even know if I ever sang it. Smiled while I was up there. And George Peters was right there helping me. As George Peters loved Jesus. And because he loved Jesus, he loved me. Rexanne Thomas. She was the principal of 
Christian middle school while I was attending there. My mom was a teacher, and my mom spent long hours uh, at um, up at the school. Uh, we would typically get there around 7.30 or 8. School would be done by 3 or 4. Sports would go on after that. And then after I got done with sports, or usually around 4 or 5 o'clock, we would stay up at the building till sometimes 8 or 9 o'clock at night, drive the 30 minutes home back to Arlington, and do it again the next day. And for whatever reason, a woman by the name of Rexanne Thomas looked kindly on me. And she allowed me um, to be the goofy middle schooler that I was, and she never gave up on me. I don't know why Mrs. Thomas didn't just kick me out of school for being the obnoxious, troubled, awkward middle schooler that I was. But she never did. Rexanne Thomas loves Jesus. And because she does, she loves me. Kevin Crum. He's my older brother. The middle, I'm the youngest. We hated each other. And I don't say that lightly. I can remember having my little diary and writing, I hate Kevin. My older brother saw it. He made me scratch it out and say, I dislike Kevin. But it didn't matter what the diary said. I hated Kevin. We fought and we fought and we fought. We didn't get along hardly at all. The very first month of my freshman year when he was a senior in high school, my dad was involved in a terrible helicopter accident. My family was in the process of going through a, a divorce and life was turned upside down. And my senior brother, who had so many other things he could be doing, put his life on pause so he could help his freshman brother survive his 15th year. It was one of the roughest years of my life. In many ways, I, I just kind of lost my dad, at least physically. He was in the hospital for most of the time and in a wheelchair after that. And my brother took care of me. And he became my, my father for that year. The year, it was his senior year. He let a little freshman tag along. And he put up with my, my screaming and my crying and my confusion through it all. And he was my rock. Kevin Crum loved Jesus. And because he loves Jesus, he loved his little brother. Salvador Cariaga. Some of you may have heard his name. He is a missionary in the Philippines. It was at that time when I was at New York Avenue Church of Christ, formerly Mayfield Road, but it burned down. Which, by the way, I just want you to know, I've been a part of three, four churches. Three of them have burned down. I was never a part of any of the burnings. I just want you to know that. Salvador Cariaga came in uh, to visit ended up helping PBS and teaching the, our um, uh, teen class at that time. And I saw this excitement in, in this little Filipino and it just sparked a fire in me to make me think that there are things outside of Arlington, Texas. And that helped me begin my journey spiritually. 
Jennifer Tyner. I don't know what else to say about her. She said yes. When every other person wanted to say no, she was the one who agreed to be my partner in life, help me in my growth. And because Jennifer loves Jesus, she loves me. Terry Kitson. Not long after graduating from ACU, I was a youth minister and I was absolutely clueless. I had no understanding. I didn't have kids. I was just married. I graduated, got married a few days later, uh, went on our honeymoon, which involved the beaches of Mexico. We left the beaches of Mexico, flew home, and the next day I was painting out in Arlington, Texas. Uh, it, was, it was a shock. And that's where I met a man by the name of Terry Kitson. Um, looked at this goofy, wet behind the ears youth minister who was clueless, and he decided to take me under his wing. Uh, he was a, a youth minister at a church just down the road, Pleasant Ridge Church of Christ. As a result of that, Terry Kitson and I still talk at least monthly. We Skype every month, and we talk about spiritual, spiritual issues, families, and relationships. I and my hero in so many ways. Because of Terry Kitson, and because he loves the Lord, he loves me. Al Crouch. The only way I can describe Al Crouch is you need to go watch Back to the Future and the crazy scientist Christopher Lloyd's character. That's exactly who Al Crouch is, except he's bald. Everything else, he's just wide-eyed and crazy. Al Crouch cares more about people and about Jesus than almost anyone ever met. And he helped nurture me as I was a youth minister, and he served as an elder, and they put up with a lot of things that I did and never gave up on me. Joe Bagby. I've talked a lot about this guy. I mean, he's he's five foot nothing, and he just had a fire that just drew me to him. Jennifer and I visited Sweetwater, not really intentionally. We had a friend who called us and asked if uh, we would be interested in, in the youth ministry position, and we weren't, but I didn't know what to say, and so I just said, yes, wrong batteries. I bet you those won't fit. So if we just need to use this, this uh, mic right here, I could probably hang close if we need to do that. Whatever works best for you. Um, we went there to visit and said, man, this is not really where we want to be. Uh, but man, I would really work, love to work with this guy. And an opportunity presented itself that I got to serve as an involvement minister. And I got to work and serve at the feet of Joe Bagby. And I saw his love and his worth, work ethic. And he had a passion for the word that is was just no one else had. Just unfathomable. Joe Bagby, he, he loves Jesus. And because he loves Jesus, he loved me. Charles Seibert. Several years after that, I, I got to meet Chainsaw Charlie 
Uh, most of you don't know him, but uh, what he did a lot is he would go in and he would visit with churches uh, and help them as they had some different issues. And <clears throat> we came in contact with one another. He was my professor at ACU, but we got more acquainted after Joe got ill and passed away. <clears throat> uh, and he uh, he saw me kind of swirling and getting caught up uh, in and basically drowning. Um, I was I was drowning, um, and he uh, and several others invited me onto a, a retreat called uh, the Ministers Resource Network. It's basically set up by mentors and by other ministers who recognize, <coughs> excuse me, ministers who are in a difficult uh, situation. <coughs> uh, that cemented our friendship. Uh, and his, he was a very busy man, uh, but he always made time to call and ask me how I was doing uh, when we were going through that rough season. <clears throat> Charles Sobert loves Jesus, and because he loves Jesus, he loves me. Bob, D.A., Dale, and Scotty. <clears throat> I tell you all the time that I don't have a, a very good memory, and that is true. I have a terrible memory. It's why I smile all the time. It's because I don't know what's happened to me. If, if anybody has ever wronged me, I don't remember it. Um, <clears throat> but I remember um, sitting in that family room uh, just over nine years ago. Uh, and I remember coming in and visiting with those four gentlemen and their wives. It's important that I mention their wives as well. And we, we sat in that room and we talked and I don't think they fully grasped how utterly broken I was. Um, I was just um, so close to, to, to wearing brown and driving a truck and delivering packages. It's, it's where I was in my life. Um, and they, they took a chance on me. And they nurtured me and they loved me. Um, and they gave me an opportunity to come to a place where I could heal. Um, Lynn Blackman. Um, I'll never forget the first time that we met. He is so much crazier than you think that he is. <laughs> but Lynn had a, was a big reason why I found myself here. Um, and having a conversation and him walking in and talking about how excited and how on fire he was, it just it just made me think, this is where I want to be. And I could talk about all of you. I could talk about Bill and Harleen. I could talk about the, um, the ignorant right hand uh, of Kenneth and Rita. So y'all, you know a little bit about that. You kind of need to do a little Bible research, but something about the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing and uh, the impact that literally all of you have had on my life. Um, I, I got to celebrate. Um, you didn't celebrate, but I celebrated nine years just about a month ago. I've never been with a congregation uh, for, for nine years you have put up with all sorts of craziness from me. The time I decided to partially unrobe this robe in front of all of you. Carolyn will still never forgive me for putting Wyatt in the freezer 
for five minutes. The ups and the downs. All I can say is, you love Jesus. And because you love Jesus, you've loved me. We are compelled by Jesus and his love. And I'm just so thankful for all of you. I could go around and tell a story about every one of you and how you've had an impact on my life. And I think that's why this year has been so difficult, certainly for me, but I know for all of us. I'm just, I'm a person who, when God created me, he said, This guy is going to need lots of people to love him. I'm a high maintenance guy, I need lots of love. Um, I don't know why it is, but that's how God made me. But as I look at Exodus chapter 17, I realize that I'm not alone. Throughout this morning, we have talked over and over again, or asked over and over again, why does this happen? Why does this happen? And I think we should be willing to ask that same question as we read Exodus chapter 16. First, we have the the water from the rock, which we talked about earlier, but then it gets really interesting, and and we're introduced to a, a guy who we've never heard of, we know nothing about, but when he's mentioned, it's as if everybody already knows about him, uh, and we're going to hear about him later, and his name is Joshua, but there's going to be another group of people called the Amalekites. And they're going to enter into the scene, and they're going to do it in a very rude and violent manner. Because now we have the Israelites who, they're, they're getting fed, they're getting water, but, but they're not ready for what's about to happen. And so, I, I'll just give you the premise of the story, and then we'll go into it in just a minute. But I, I want to ask the question, why did God let this happen? The Amalekites see the Israelites. They're wandering around in the desert. They're trying to get food. They're trying to get water. They're complaining. They're grumbling. There's no order. And the Amalekites say, hey, let's go get them. Uh, One, they could have thought we see them as a threat. Two, they could have just said, hey, this is an awesome opportunity to plunder the Israelites who just plundered the Egyptians. And this really would help them out right? Why did God let this happen? Let me ask you this question. Could God have scripted this a different way? Amalekites could have just dropped dead. Their swords could have turned to rubber. I mean, he could have done anything. He could have made them blind. Uh, He could have made the Israelites invisible. Uh, He could have surrounded the Israelites Uh, with an army of angels to go out and they wouldn't have to do anything. Just sit there, eat popcorn, and watch the Amalekites just get destroyed. That's what happened with Pharaoh's army. I mean, they didn't have to do anything. They walked on dry land, turned around and saw the show and said, Woo! Sang a song. Well, and then they started complaining. But why why did God let this happen? I I want you to ask this question because there's a lot of things that happen in Exodus that could have happened differently. 
And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not criticizing God. I'm just asking, why would he do it this way? You, you probably know a little bit about that, but let's go ahead and read, and, and then we'll, we'll see if we can answer that question. Verse 8 of chapter 17. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, here we have Joshua, we know nothing about him, but, but the writer assumes that everybody knows Joshua. It's a household name. Okay, so he's just going to keep on going. Choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So this is, this is what Moses says to them. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went on top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So let's stop. I want to talk about this. Why, why the, they're winning and they're not winning? What's, it, it, can you, do you have a reason behind that? There's, there's several suggestions. What do you think? Okay, reaching to God. So it's like a conduit through which, you know, God was working. Okay, good. What else? I mean, we don't know for sure. So another example of his mighty hand. Okay, that, that, that God is working through Moses and the staff, and therefore it's being transferred onto the Israelites as they are fighting. Uh, why else? You think it would have been a visual for the Israelites? Um, what what did what did Moses' staff? What did that mean? What did that convey? Yes. Okay. So we have the 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 staff is is what's used in the Red Sea. Where else is the staff used? It's used on the rock. Where else is it used? The snake. I mean, throughout all of the plagues, we see the staff is 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 an instrument of God, and and Moses also an instrument of God is wielding it. And so when people saw the staff. Um, I think they understood what it represented. It not only represented the power of God, but in many ways it represented God himself and the deliverance that he had given. It was, it was Moses and the staff that was there when the plagues happened. It was Moses and the staff that led them out in the desert. It was Moses and the staff that parted the sea and gave them water. And so we have this. And so there's a lot of different reasons. I think one of the reasons, if if you can imagine, um, they were up on a hill, and I think that's an, an important uh, point uh, to discuss because what happens if they're up on the hill? Everybody else can see them. So this wasn't just you know something done in secret. This is something done where everybody could see. Someone suggested, well, you know, maybe when Moses was raising his hands. That meant that he was in prayer. Um, that would also imply that when he put his hands down, he stopped praying for, for the people. And so I don't, 
I don't think that necessarily this is I'm praying, I'm not praying. Um, I think it was a, a visual reminder to the people who were fighting, God is with us. We just need to what? Trust Him. Remember, this is where Exodus is going to go. Trust in God and, and, and follow Him faithfully. Right? That's what's going to be Exodus. It's not about leaving uh, a country. It's about entering into a relationship. And so this is what we're going to see here. But then something happens. When, and how old is Moses at this time, by the way? Is anybody we kind of have a guess about? About 80 years old, remember? Um, he spent 40 years um, living in Egypt. He spent 40 years in the desert. And now, however long it took, I think if we'll look down in just a minute or, or up earlier, they, they've been out for about a month. So he's 80 years old. Okay. Um, and I don't know about you, but it's a lot harder to keep your hand raised than you think it does. We're Church of Christ, so we don't ever raise our hands unless we're asking a question. But you've been there, right, when you've had to change a light bulb, and after, after about three or four turns, you're like, man, I'm kind of getting sore. He's 80 years old. And so I just want to ask the question, and I know you're getting tired of it, but I want to ask the question, why God? Really, why do we have to do this? I mean, I mean, does it seem a little silly? Like, I'll give you guys the victory as long as Moses, you have your hands up in the air. But if you put them down, like, all bets are off. Okay. Did you read ahead? You were not supposed to read ahead. <laughs> you, you've been teaching this on flannel board for a really long time. Back in the baby. So yes, Louise is exactly right. Verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and her, okay, there's your trivia question. Her, H-U-R, held up his hands one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. So I just want you to imagine the scene now. You're down here fighting. You're in the valley. You're not a trained army, but you're having to defend yourself and ultimately your people. Your children and your wife, they're all back behind you. You know that if you lose this, this means destruction and devastation for your family and for your people. And then you look up and you see Moses up there holding his, his staff. And that's like, we can do this. God is with us. We've walked on dry uh, ground. We've survived the plagues. We've drank water uh, from, from a rock. We can do this. But then his arms start to get tired. And you look up and you think, can we really do this? And then they, they realize this. I don't know how long it takes. I don't know how they're able to figure it out. But, but they have a, a, a good enough vantage point from where they are that they can see we're winning and we're not winning. 
Okay, so they could see that this happens enough times that they realize that there's a pattern forming and they decide we've got to keep our hands up. Is this God who says, I will only work if you have your hands up? Or is this a God who says, I want you to know you are not alone. It's why 2020 was such a terrible year. It's why we saw depression and suicide just skyrocket. When we saw families just broken and torn apart, when family members entered into a nursing home who were sick or, or to a hospital and they were told, you can't come in, you have to stay out. And physically, needs were getting met. But emotionally and relationally, socially, psychologically, people were just tanking. Because God created you to be in community. He created you from the very beginning. Remember, God looked at Adam and what did He say? This isn't good. He needs a helper. He needs a partner. He needs a mate. And God created woman so that man wouldn't be alone. There you have it, ladies. What you knew all along. Guys can't do it by themselves. And guys, if you haven't figured it out, read the Bible. You can't do it by yourselves. We are called to be in community. Why is this so important? Because God Himself has been in community from the very beginning. God was never alone. Now, you're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. But the concept is everywhere. You go look at John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That is God. That is Jesus being referenced back from the very, very beginning. That God understood the importance of community, of relationships, of gathering together. Of knowing that there are people who support you and when you're going through a tough time, you can look up on the hill and you can see people raising their staff and saying, don't give up. Oddly enough, when, when Jennifer and I went through some, some struggles pretty early on, uh, we had had Wyatt uh, and then she ended up miscarrying uh, the, the first time we were in Mansfield. And I can remember we had a, a family who came up, a, a lady who came up in our church, and um, obviously we, we were devastated. And, um, and the, one of the reasons why I was so devastated is that I knew that child was going to be okay. Uh, we'd gotten a report the week before that they it did something didn't look right. Couldn't find the heartbeat, and it looked like the growth wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And 
and and I just I can remember that that happened on a, maybe a Tuesday or something, and because I can remember going to the youth group, I think it was on a Wednesday night, and said, "Hey, you know, we we're we're expecting a child, and there's something not right, but I if you guys will will pray." I know everything's going to be okay. And I knew God was going to, I knew how God was going to work. Like God is going to save this child and everybody will know. The doctors will know. Everybody's going to know because we told everybody things aren't going good, but we're going to pray and God's going to do powerful things. And he, he is going to save that little baby because there's no reason for that little baby to die. And, and we lost that child. And I remember thinking, why would you do that? Like, I completely trusted you. I had no doubt that you were going to fix that for me. I knew You could have done it, and you chose not to. And I remember how angry and hurt we were, because I just so, I was so certain that that wouldn't happen. And... And I can remember a, a young lady coming up to, to Jennifer not long after that happened and just talking to her and saying, you know what, I've, we, we lost one too and we know how bad it hurts and we hurt with you and we love you. And that ended up being one of those things that really helped us out. And, and that's when I began to understand that that sometimes the most powerful ways that God's work, that God works, isn't through miracles. It's through people. And that's what this story is really all about. It's about God works in powerful ways, and sometimes He's going to part the waters, and sometimes you're going to feel like you're drowning in them. And that's when you can look up and you can see people just like you sitting in these pews. People who have gone through heartache and have remained faithful. I mean, I could just sit here and tell story after story after so many of you have had struggles in your life. And here you are. And in times when, when Jennifer and I have been in tough places... We've had people who love us because they love Jesus. It took me really not very long, and honestly, I, I could add to my, my her list. But I want you to think about your hers. Who are the, who are the hers in your life? Who are the, the H-U-R's in your life? I... I didn't include a lot of people, my, my parents for sure, and many of you I could spend a lot of time talking about, but I want you to think about that for just a minute. I want you to think about the times in your life where you were struggling and somebody held up the staff of the Lord for you. Who were those cheerleaders? Who were those people who got you out of the trenches or just sat in the trenches with you why would God allow the Amalekites to attack the Israelites who were unprepared 
It's because God wanted to remind His people. Hang together. I want you to to trust in me and lean on one another. And that's what we've all had to do through the different chapters of our life. And I just wonder how many thousands of Moseses there are in this world. Thousands of Moseses. That if you set them down and said, who is your Aaron? Who is your her? I wonder how many of thousands of people would write your name on a piece of paper. You're the one who didn't give up on me. You're the one who came to me. You're the one who consoled me. You're the one who was with me in the hard times. You fed me. And you visited me. And you wrote letters to me. I think 2020 was so tough because in a lot of ways people became very isolated and we didn't know exactly how do you do community when you social distance. But I think this gives all of us an opportunity and I've seen how people have made the opportunity to continue to look to each other and to hold one another up. Now, this is actually going to parlay into another story and we'll go through it much quick, much more quickly. But Moses is going to go back to Jethro, who Jethro is, the father-in-law. And he's going to tell him what happened. And Jethro, verse 9, is going to be delighted to hear about all the good things that the Lord had done for Israel and rescuing them from the Egyptians. And then Jethro was going to come and, and stay with them. And verse 14 says, um, well, let me back up one more verse. I want to back up to 13. Uh, the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning until evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around uh, you from morning until evening? And Moses answered, Because the people come to me to seek God's will whenever they have a dispute. It is brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Jethro is going to offer some unsolicited advice. <laughs> Moses' father, and that's what in-laws are really good at, <laughs> by the way. Moses' father-in-law replied, What are you doing? What you are doing is what? Not good. Well, thanks, father-in-law. Appreciate that. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to them. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. 
But select capable men from the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide on themselves, that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. Because they will share it with you. If you do this, uh, and God so commands, you will be able to stand this, withstand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses, you, you know the rest of the story. He's actually going to listen to Jethro's advice. He's going to um, delegate it out and choose representatives to help out. This is the second part of the exact same lesson. Except it's just on the flip side. You know, when I think about the story of Moses holding up the staff and Aaron and her, what I think about is, is there are people um, who are willing to help. That they will hold up arms. There are people in my life, I am who I am because of the grace of God and because people like you and others that I've listed uh, have have really allowed me um, to grow and and love the Lord more fully. I look at you and you serve an example of people who are humble and who love the Lord. But there's another part of this. You know, Moses um, had to learn humility. Because there could have been a part of him standing on that hill says, Oh yeah, this is me. I'm doing this. I mean, he could have said, Guys, this is all me. You just probably should take a step back. Like, you know, I'm the man. But when he started struggling, he allowed people to come in and hold him up. And this, oddly enough, is so much harder, isn't it? It is so much easier to help someone than to be helped by someone. Isn't that true? How many of us, you stinking, prideful people, and I only say that because I'm the same way, it just drives me. I don't want people to help me out. I need people to help me out, and I'm thankful when they do. But I'm like, I, I like, I need to do this. Like, I'm, I'm I, I've got to be able to do this, and I don't want to bother you. And Jethro says, Moses, you can't do this. This is more than you can bear. It's going to drive people crazy. And so, part of Exodus is, hey, you've got to trust in God. But then we completely shift gears and what God is teaching Moses and the Israelites is you've got to start trusting one another. You've got to literally lean on one another. And you also have to trust that other people can help you out. That's what's so beautiful about church. Is it's an opportunity for us to come together and some days you're a Moses. Be that Moses. 
I've shared this a million times before, but one of the things I remember from my uh, ministry to grieving classes uh, is um, there's a, a man who had lost his, his wife uh, unexpectedly at an early age. And he talked about the struggle of going to church and how difficult it was because he and his wife's life was wrapped around church. And to go there was just, it, it was so emotional for him and brought back so many uh, memories. Uh, and then he asked a question that I thought was a little off topic. He says, so why do we sing in church? And his response was so profound to me. He says, because other people can't. There are going to be times in your life where you do not have the energy to lift up your arms. You're down in the valley and you're fighting and you think you're going to lose, but you can look up and you can see somebody holding up the staff, praising God, and you can say, I can do this. And so some of you right now, you are in that Moses moment. And you are just, you are in tune with God and spiritually and your prayer life is right where it needs to be. And you're just, yes, raise your hands and your voices to God. Because there are people out there who say, where I'm at, I don't know if I can get out of this valley. Moses walked around in that same valley for 40 years, and now he was on the hilltop. So some of you older folks, when, you're, when your body doesn't cooperate with you like it should, when the knees start hurting, when the joints start aching, when you don't have that energy and you get yourself up and you get out of bed and you show up here or you log on online, I want you to know you're doing that for the Lord, but when you do that, you're a Moses to people down in the valley. Don't stop. Your stories of faithfulness speak in my heart. When I know what you've been through and you say, I'm, I've gotten through this, I'm praising God and you can too. And the last part of this is this. When you can't lift up your arms anymore, don't fake it. Don't pretend. Don't use all the cliches we always use. When somebody says, how are you doing? Be willing to say, look, I'm really struggling. My prayer life is not where it needs to be. Like I'm just, I'm just living spiritually on a Tuesday afternoon. I just... I'm there, but I'm not really there. I'm filled with a room of Aaron and hers. 
And some of them have been Moseses with their arms lifted up. And other times, they've had to have people hold them up too. It's what we do. It's who we are. God didn't create us and say, whoops, I messed up. We are people who live in a world that's broken and we struggle. We don't have to pretend. Just look at people and say, man, things are really tough. 2020 did a number on me. I'm still hurt or I'm angry or I'm confused. Look at people in the eye and say, can you help hold me up? And, and if you're not there, if you're in that place, be the her who grabs the rock. It says, come sit down. I'm going to hold up your arms. That's, that was so difficult about COVID is that you, you couldn't figure out who was hurting and who was fine. But I'm just going to ask you to be the example that we find in Exodus chapter 17. Is that you hold up your arms until you can't and then you let others do it. And when you're walking around, find people who just can't hold them up anymore and say, I'm here with you. You are not alone. It's the beautiful story of Exodus. And I'm so thankful that this now unknown group of Amalekites decided to fight the Israelites that day so we could learn that leaning on each other is what God has called us to do. And, and one last time, I just want to say, Thank you for letting me and my family lean on you. I am so blessed to have a church family like you guys. I am just so thankful for you. And Miss Pat knew for years what, what I've gotten to see the last nine years. is This is a beautiful group of people. And it's just because you love Jesus. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I want to give glory to Jesus for you. And so I want to close this out in prayer this morning. God, I just I thank you for the people in this room. I thank you for the fact that they have been Aaron and hers in the lives of so many people. But Lord, I'm just thankful that they did that. And I know they didn't do it just because they're nice or they're kind. They did it because they love you. Uh, and in doing so, they love other people. Lord, we're about to leave this place and we're going to be surrounded by a lot of folks who are down in that valley and they are fighting and they are struggling and they feel like they're losing. And Lord, I just pray we will be people that that hold up uh, your name and your word and that they can see that, that they don't have to live their lives in despair uh, and in defeat, but instead that they can recognize that we all have victory because of you. God, thank you for the people that you've placed in my life that uh, have allowed me to to grow and, and come to love you. And Lord, when I find myself struggling, Lord, I just pray you will continue um, to use other people uh, to hold me up so that ultimately I can lift up your name. Uh, it's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for being here. You're dismissed.